Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 30th of October. Welcome to World Review, The New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's just days to go now until the US presidential election next Tuesday. Emily, some reflections at this late stage of the campaign? I would say that it's extremely tense. It's, it's extremely tense here right now. I think even despite the polling, people really don't know how it's going to go. We had dueling Biden-Trump appearances in Florida. We have Kamala Harris in Texas. We have it's. You, you feel like it's a sprint to the finish, but also since we don't actually know what is going to transpire next Tuesday, it's like a sprint to the finish and you don't know for how much longer you're going to need to keep running. Right, because it may not be over by Wednesday. Exactly. How are you managing to stay so zen-like and cool amid all of this attention? Jeremy, I'm neither zen-like nor cool, so I can't answer that question. But thank you. I'm glad I came across that way. <laughs> a charade or indeed a charade. Yeah. First of all, let's, let's, first, let's hear your moment of the past week. What do you think we will be remembering in, in the future about the past seven days? Well, depending on how next week goes, we will definitely be remembering that um, Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court. Quick recap, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died little over a month ago. She said, my my last wish is that I not be replaced until the next president. The Republican-controlled Senate, which famously did not seat Judge Merrick Garland during the last year of Obama's administration, said, too bad, and got her confirmation through. So Trump has appointed a third of the justices to the Supreme Court. This is both important because that's like a very lasting legacy, obviously. This will be decades long. It's a lifetime appointment. Hours after the Senate voted to go ahead with her confirmation, a case was brought before the Supreme Court to decide whether to take it, and that case could effectively overturn Roe v. Wade, which allows women to get abortions without restrictions. We could know Monday, the day before the election, whether the Supreme Court will take that case. The other reason this is really important is that it is not inconceivable that this election does not end up decided by the Supreme Court. Trump and Republican Senate allies said that that was part of why they wanted her on the bench. Amy Coney Barrett recused herself from a decision that would have... Basically, the Supreme Court already decided that, yes, Pennsylvania could could accept more ballots that came in through mail-in early voting. Republicans had asked them to rehear the case with Amy Coney Barrett. She said no, she would recuse herself from that. She didn't have enough time to review the case, but she has said that she will not recuse herself from other cases involving the election. So we will see what role in American history she plays next week. What was your moment of the past week? Well, this episode will be 
overwhelmingly about the US, but we do also cover the rest of the world. And indeed, we'll be returning to non-US subjects as soon after the election as, as events permit. And in that spirit, I will flag the announcement yesterday as we record this, so on Thursday, of China's new five-year plan. Xi Jinping gave a speech at the, in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing and announced the key points of that plan, including um, technological self-sufficiency, an interesting nod to the decoupling of the technology infrastructures of the US and China. The idea is that China should be a manufacturing and ICT superpower within those five years. He talked of an energy revolution, a great leap forward for a modern military, and finally, a goal of 2035 to achieve rule of law in China. So I think it was striking, not just because the next five years, particularly thanks to the some of the actions of, of the, the sitting US president, will mark the point at which China becomes, in many ways, a, a strategic equal to the US. And I think it's it, we, will, we will be looking back at this speech in that context, but also because I think it spoke to the way that China has, even though it was the source of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that pandemic, particularly early on in the year, exposed some major structural and systematic flaws in, in China's processes of government and public services. China these days has the, the pandemic very much under control in a way that can't be said of Europe or the US. Pointedly, those attending the speech did not wear masks, nor did she himself which felt like a sort of visual reminder that China's moved on from the, the peak of the pandemic in a way that others haven't. And I think it just goes to show the way that the pandemic could end up accelerating China's catch up with the US, in term, both economically, technologically, and just giving it the space to, to pull ahead when the US and indeed others are still caught up with, with fighting the pandemic. So a significant moment, I think. I'm now very pleased to welcome onto World Review our guest this week. We're really pleased to be joined by Sir Kim Darroch, who was from 2016 to 2019 the British ambassador to the United States. Before that, he had a long and illustrious diplomatic career, serving as British permanent representative to the EU, as well as national security advisor. And his time as British ambassador came to an end in 2019, when critical comments about the Trump administration that he'd written in a, in a confidential diplomatic cable were, were leaked. And he resigned from the position. He now sits in the House of Lords. And he's recently published a book about his time in Washington and his broader diplomatic career by the name of Collateral Damage, which I can strongly recommend as a really well-written and thoughtful take on Britain's place in the world, the transatlantic relationship, the special relationship between Britain and the US, and Britain's role with regards to Europe as well. And Sir Kim also wrote the New Statesman Diary early in September, in which he reflected on the US election campaign. So we thought, who better to come on our podcast and give a transatlantic perspective on the election next Tuesday. So Sir Kim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And thank you for the comments about the book. I'm glad you liked it. Absolutely. In fact, I'd like to actually start with the book. And you, first of all, you describe a comment that you made in said diplomatic cables in which you compared Donald Trump to the Terminator, a comparison that I, I understand he took as a compliment, perhaps rightly. As a, if I've understood it correctly, you were getting at his indestructibility and you, you mooted that he could potentially win a second term. And it's a possibility that you talk about further in the book, in your conclusions, you keep the door open to a, a po the possibility of a second Trump term. And you made that point as well in your US diary. You wrote about how suburban women in the Midwest came home to the Republicans at the last minute. You say it could happen again. So with how many days is it? Four days until the election. What's your current thoughts on the Terminator status of Donald Trump? Yeah, on the Terminator, I mean, just very briefly, Jeremy, the image I had in my mind when I, when I wrote that was towards the end, 
of, I think it's the first film, where Schwarzenegger as the Terminator emerges from the flames and all of his artificial skin has been burnt off. So it's just this metal skeleton coming out of the flames, but still ready for action and still kind of fighting. And I mean, Donald Trump has weathered some extraordinary storms, both during his 26th campaign and during his presidency. Just think of the rows around his handling of Charlottesville, his rows around his handling of COVID-19, around the, the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis, and a lot more. And he has a sort of indestructible character to him that he, he comes through all this, and critically, he maintains a 40% approval rating, give or take a couple of points, amongst the American public, and more than 80% amongst the uh, Republican voters. Higher ratings at times in his first term than Ronald Reagan enjoyed. So there is something, I think, indestructible about this guy. Can he win a second term? Well, look, all of the, uh, the polls suggest not. And Biden's lead is bigger, both nationally and in the battleground states, than Hillary Clinton's ever was. But it's not a normal election. These are not normal times. And the polls got it wrong in 2016. They underestimated the support out there for Donald Trump. I mean, they now attribute it to the shy Trump voter who doesn't admit to the uh, the pollster who he is going to vote for. And the pollsters I knew in Washington claim they have solved that problem and that it won't happen this time. But until we get to election night, you really, really can't be sure. So if you, know, if you held a gun to my head and said, you have to bet one way or another, I think I put my money on uh, on Joe Biden just because... It feels, still feels like his lead you know, is bigger than sort of than, than the margin of error on the polls. But I wouldn't do so with massive confidence. Yeah, that dovetails actually with Emily's perspective on this as our, as our Washington-based US editor, Emily's constantly been the voice of, of doubt about Joe Biden's chances. Emily, with four days to go, what's your, your view on all this? Do you share Sir Kim's reservations about making a firm prediction that Biden will win? Yeah, I, I will believe that Biden wins the presidency like on inauguration day. Uh, Sir Kim, to your point, in my column this week, I wrote about my two predictions at the start of this, like last year at the start of this campaign, were that Joe Biden would be the candidate and Donald Trump would win re-election. And in both cases, it was because like nothing seemed to touch these guys, right? Biden would give poor debate performance after, you know, just like not even poor, just unimpressive. He wasn't, there was no compelling message to get different kinds of voters to the polls, right? Young voters, black voters who sat home in, in 2016. His answers were kind of long and rambling and he, he just would not go down in the polls. And similarly, Trump, after any number of things that you would think would make voters go like, this is not the move, continued to support him at about, you know, at, at what, 40%. The two things that have have made me think that maybe I'll be wrong and Joe Biden will win on Tuesday are first the pandemic, which I think actually has, it's different than every other Trump story and that he can't tweet through it. Because unlike members of the media and the opposition and other Republicans, the virus is not scrolling through Twitter thinking of like, which tweet is going to distract me. And, you know, Steve Bannon at the very beginning of this said, the opposition is the media and we just flood the zone and you guys don't know what to do. Well, the virus, you can't flood the zone, right? The virus is single-minded in its determination to spread and infect Americans in a way that Trump can't get off that story, and it's a bad story for him. The other thing is that I think that Biden has, first of all, he's made inroads into some of, of Trump's voters, so especially older voters, who perhaps not surprisingly, given how the pandemic 
affects older people have switched to say that they're likely to vote for Biden. Although you could say that there are some traditional Biden voters like Latino men who have said that they're going to vote for Trump. So we'll see. The other thing is that if you look at early voting, which has been very high, understandably because it's a pandemic, right? People don't want to wait in line on election day at a, at a few polling sites. The youth vote has been really high, like way higher than it was in 2016. And so perhaps this enthusiasm gap that I did not see Biden making up, actually, they, they are enthusiastic about the prospect of Trump not being president anymore. Having said that, the logistical challenges presented by the pandemic, exactly as Sir Kim said, right, this is the counting of the votes is something that I, I think every American should be extremely wary about. Like, are our votes going to get thrown out? Is this decision going to be made by the voters or by the courts? I saw a, a tweet today that said nobody, it's not that people doubt that Biden will get more votes. But people very much doubt that Biden will be the next president because that's the system in America between the Electoral College and how certain swing states go and what happens at which court, at which level. It is a very, if I had to bet, I'd bet on Trump still. Just to, to Emily's first point about how, in a way, unimpressive, how sort of flat a candidate Joe Biden has been. I agree very strongly with her about his mediocre debate performances. Really, I thought the best performance he did was actually in the final, in, in the last presidential debate last week. I thought he was pretty terrible in the first one, but he got away with it because Trump behaved so badly and because Trump failed to um, condemn white supremacists. But what we used to say inside the embassy about Joe Biden to be indiscreet was, he certainly passed his best and his best was never that great. But, but, my, 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 my sort of point here, I was lucky enough to be at Harvard for uh, two and a half months from February to, um, to April as a, as a sort of visiting fellow this year. I was attached to the Institute of Politics and there were a lot of very bright students around. And I would just say to you, I never met one of them, male or female, who was a Biden supporter. They all liked Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. Not one of them ever said, I'm a Biden man or a Biden woman. They just sort of regard him as a, they didn't know what he stood for. They didn't know, you know where he was on the issues. They were, were taken by the stuff that, that Warren and uh, Sanders were doing about healthcare, for example. But they couldn't tell you a single thing that Joe Biden stood for. So that kind of worried me. But I think Emily is absolutely spot on. And that if you wanted to invent something that you knew would damage Donald Trump's bid for a second term, coronavirus would probably be that thing because... He, he won the seniors, the senior vote, quite comfortably, if not big, in 2016. And that's one of the big demographics where he started to lose this time because they regard this as you know, something that targets them in particular, the coronavirus, that is. And they don't think he, he really cares about them. They think he thinks his, they're expendable. You know, there's almost a kind of biblical sort of sort of sense that this is the thing that has come to to do down his bid for a second term because it is so so accurately targeted as you know one of his weaknesses i notice he's even he even talks about it as a plague so there we go yeah. <laughs> i'd like to i'd like to come on to what sort of president joe biden would make in in your opinion but actually first let's just say for the sake of argument that biden wins next tuesday and trump goes down as a one term president how do you think history will see him you were there from before he became president, through most of his presidency and have been following the US since then. What will be written in the history books about him? What will his significance be? And one related question is, would you see him more as the final bookend on a previous era or on the start of something new? 
Yeah, those are those are very good questions, Jeremy, but very hard to answer now. Ten years' time, you know, I'll have, have, have a better answer, but here's what I think. I think it might look, if Biden wins, six months down the track, like Donald Trump was a kind of blip in history, you know, the American electorate rolling the dice in frustration at what had come before and just taking a chance and realising it hadn't been a great idea and returning to a more you know, conventional politician for the foreseeable future. It could look like that. I think, though, that Donald Trump, if you look beneath the surface, will turn out to have changed the landscape in some ways. And just to give you, you know, a few examples of, of, of this, First of all, I think that in terms of some of the things he's done overseas, which of course we used to focus on when I was was in Washington, I don't think the US will be able to do trade deals in the future with anyone that aren't very visibly and very clearly benefiting some part of the American economy, whether it's farmers or industry or financial services or whatever. So I think he has moved the goalposts on that. And, you know, they won't be able to do, quote, terrible trade deals, unquote, in the future. I think that there is now a bipartisan consensus amongst security, national security experts about the strategic challenge and threat from China, which Trump has helped to build up. I think that will go away. I don't think Biden can afford to be, to be soft on China. I think that a future American president, Joe Biden, or whoever succeeds him, will not be able to be so generous to America's NATO partners those that don't spend 2% of their GDP as they have promised on defence. I think that pressure will have to keep up. But more kind of fundamentally, I think that the Trump style and tone and manner of conducting the presidency, I mean, there are already, as you see, some Trump imitators around on the international scene. And I think politicians, I noticed this about British politicians when they come over, not they're necessarily going to turn themselves to me, Donald Trump's, but they were just fascinated by the way that he communicated, the way he savaged his opponents, the way he talked over the media, the way he used social media. And I think that will be a lasting legacy. I would like to think it wouldn't be a lasting legacy in terms of the viciousness and brutality of the political dialogue, but it might be. But people will look for many years to come at the way Trump did it. Came from Nowhere. First time he'd ever run for any elected office and he wins the most powerful office on the planet and think there are things they can learn from that. And so I think aspects of Trumpian behavior are here with us to stay in the way that political discourse is conducted. What about you, Emily? As, a, as an American sitting in Washington, does it feel like the start of an era or the beginning of something? I think it's both, right? I think that in some ways, Trump is the logical conclusion of many years of Republican policy, right? That the end result was maybe not expected, but this was put in play by what had come before. But I also think I once was at an event where a TV personality said, after these four years, we will look back and it will be like this never happened. I just thought like, what must your life be like that you could stand here and say that to these good people today? I think Circum is correct. Our foreign policy is is changed because of this. It is so much more politicized. I think the way in which, although I know that there are diplomats overseas who I think are, are telling themselves that they can take the posture that we'll just pretend like this never happened. We'll go back to America the way it was before. How can you, right? How can you, where other countries were so insulted, where alliances were so tested, where tariffs were applied like this? I think that, so I think that the memory of that will be lasting. 
But I think domestically, Congressman Matt Goetz, a Republican from Florida who is young and who's like a prominent member in the party, said like, oh, I'll never love another president again after Trump because he loves Trump so much and is clearly modeling himself after that. I think you have people like Tucker Carlson, who, you know, a conservative TV personality, who you could certainly imagine having a political run with this kind of Trumpian discourse. But yeah, this the polarization, the denigration of the media, the treating of the press as the enemy of the people, the far right violence, the white supremacy, you know, I not to sound like like Lady Doom over here, but none of that goes back into the bottle if Trump is out of the White House. And Trump, by the way, is also not going back into the bottle if he loses. Like he will still be a, a force in American political life. It's a long road back for us. Yeah. You talk about alliances being tested, Emily, and that's actually where I want to go next with with our conversation. Again, if Biden wins, and I think we all accept it's not absolutely certain, but if he does, there'll be this sense of America's coming back. America's back on the world stage. It's back as a normative power. It's recognizable again. There'll be a great sense that he's got to reset relationships with all sorts of allies and institutions. And I read the essay that he wrote in Foreign Affairs earlier this year, which he talked about democracy as being a, an important foundational idea of a new American approach on the world stage. And a lot of the, the language, as it so often is in, is in American politics, is loaded with idealism. You know, America is going to come back to the world stage and it's going to convene a summit of democracies and it's going to stand up for these values and principles. And I'd be interested, so Kim, first of all, on your point of view, both as an observer of the US and as a career diplomat, on how you think Biden will and or should strike a balance between the idealism that will be expected of him, the kind of the the grand re-emergence of the US on the world stage, and the realism that he will have to work with, because he'll be becoming president if he does become president in January at a time when the US will presumably still be grappling with the pandemic. China has made strides in the past months and years. America's place in the world economy is an open question. In some ways, it's going to be quite a cold climate he will become president in. And so do you think he can manage to live up to the ideals that people will hope from him? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I think he will try and, you know, he can do an inspirational speech. Maybe he's not quite in um, Obama's class or JFK's class, but he can, you know, he'll do a good inauguration speech. And there'll be plenty of idealism. But I met him two or three times, and I had a long conversation with him back in 2019. And I sort of think, but this is this is guesswork, that the pragmatic side and deal-making side of Joe Biden will override the idealism, simply because he'll want to get things done. And I personally think he may well be, from choice, not from losing action, a one-term president. And he'll want to do a lot of things in that term. And he has 30 years track record of working across the aisle, got him in some trouble during the primary campaign, that he'll try to bring to bear to get stuff done. If, by the way, the Democrats win back the Senate, obviously that makes a huge difference. But even if they don't, he'll try and find some moderate, pragmatic Republicans to to work with. But he will do some symbolic things, I expect. So I think the first thing he will do maybe as soon as he has won, maybe in his, in his first public seminar of winning, but, but certainly very early in his term, will be to announce that America is rejoining the uh, Paris Climate Change uh, Agreement. And that is important for the planet. And that will play well in Europe, play well mostly internationally. And it gives him a basis on which to put pressure on the likes of China and India to do more on climate change. That will be widely welcomed and a good symbol of America coming back to the international community. 
I mean, I don't know this, but I think he will, if I were him, I'd be saying do an early visit to, to Europe, do a NATO summit to reaffirm US commitment to NATO and reaffirm US commitment to Article 5 in particular. And why not add on to that an EU summit where you reset to the traditional US position, hitherto on both sides of the political divide, of basically supporting European integration. Not, by the way, great news for post-Brexit Britain, but I kind of suspect that he might do that. And anyway, it's a very convenient opportunity to meet 28 European leaders in one shot. I think he'll try and do something about rejoining the Iran nuclear deal. It wouldn't surprise me if he tried to set some conditions for the Iranians around doing that, around their ballistic missile development or their activities, their nefarious activities in the region. I don't think he will take the US embassy out of Jerusalem. I think that's kind of done now. But I think he'll open up the Palestinians rather than kind of pushing them away in the way that the Trump administration's done. All of those things will have, you know, the things that matter in Europe that affect European security and which will have a real impact if he announces them cleverly and you know, doesn't give them all away at once and this kind of thing. But in terms of what he does domestically, you know, he'll need to find allies to ensure that the Democrat Party doesn't split into progressive and moderate wings and doesn't hamper his, you know, whatever he wants to achieve by internal splits. And then, as I say, try and uh, find some ways of working with moderate Republicans as well. So more pragmatism and more deal-making and idealism save, you know, the odd landmark speech like his inauguration speech. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. I have a last question for you for this segment, which is, what does Biden mean for a post-Brexit Britain? Yeah, I think, Emily, that I should just say at the outset, in number 10, they've been briefing reasonably heavily, first of all, that Biden would be great for them. And then as some reality dawned, that it would be fine for, for us, you know, we might not get the first phone call, he might phone Merkel first or Macron, but we bring so much to the table that, you know, the UK-US, the special relationship would still be important to him. And, you know, I think the defence, security, intelligence bedrock to the relationship will be as important as ever. They're, they're too deeply collaborating, too deeply integrated for you know, that to be, to be disturbed or damaged. And in that area, I think we do bring something important to the table. There is burden sharing and US resources would be more stretched if we weren't there. So I think he will keep that seat, as it were. But he doesn't like Brexit. The Democrats as a whole, I never met a Democrat who liked Brexit. They must exist, but I never met one. Biden has Irish roots, as you know, through on his mother's side. And I am sure that if we do something as part of Brexit that the Irish government believes is putting the Good Friday Agreement at risk, then any idea of a free trade deal with the UK will go into the highest of the back shelves of the US administration. And anyway, anyway, it might, because the US priority will be to do a deal with the Asian Pacific, Trans-Pacific Partnership, or will be to do an EU-US free trade deal. So in terms of the immediate priority for the Johnson government post-Brexit, the free trade deal with the US, I think we could be, as Obama said back in 2016, back of the queue, or at least some way down the queue. And at a time when Boris Johnson's government isn't kind of overflowing with successes, 
that's not good news for them. I mean, it's something we can cope with, but it's not good news. That will be a blow for them. And given some of the things that Boris Johnson has said in the past about Obama in particular, and the likelihood that some, some of the Obama team will reappear in the Biden administration, I'm not sure it'll be the warmest of relationships either. I'm not sure it's going to be Thatcher, Reagan, or um, Blair, Clinton, or Blair Bush. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the, that point about Obama-era officials reappearing in a Biden administration. From the way it's talked about in London, you get the sense that it would be a completely different bunch of people. But of course, of course, it won't. Be. They should disabuse themselves of that notion. There. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, every time I see speculation about the names that might appear in a Biden White House or in a Biden cabinet or in senior positions in the most important ministry. They're all people I knew working for Obama. I hear Susan Rice, for example, spoken of as a possible uh, Secretary of State. Well, I mean, it's Susan Rice or Tony Blinken, National Security Advisor Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan. You know, (laughs) I mean, is Ben Rhodes, Emily may know this, is Ben Rhodes going to get a job? You read Ben Rhodes' Twitter feed, he tweeted only about three or four weeks ago. I'm old enough to remember what Boris Johnson said about Barack Obama's part Kenyan ancestry and his ancestral dislike of uh, the British Empire. You know, it's all still quite fresh there. I think that's underestimated in some in some quarters in the UK. So now it's time for a question that we like to call You Ask Us. Our question this week comes from an anonymous listener, and it is, if Biden wins decisively, what will happen in the White House between November 4th and Inauguration Day? Well, we don't normally ask guests to <laughs> to predict the future, but we will ask you. So we'll, we'll let you take the first, uh, the first stab at that. Emily, I would like to believe, but <laughs> I don't, that <laughs> Donald Trump will accept defeat graciously. You know, we'll sort of congratulate Biden and we'll ride off into the sunset. I think it's more likely that he will say that exactly as he predicted, postal votes turned into a huge fraud, organized piece of fraud, and that had so many people not not used postal votes, he would have won, but the Democrats and Biden have stolen the election, and it's all unfair. I fear that's what he will do. If he does, I think that, especially... I mean, Biden's best chance of avoiding this kind of thing is the more decisive the victory, the more of a blowout it is, the better. But I think then some senior Republicans might actually form up to to Trump and say, uh, look, you just can't do this. You have to go and prevail on him to um, leave. Meanwhile, I don't think Biden, whatever Trump does, will launch personal attacks on him. He will just say, I've won. And he will start to behave in the inauguration period like president and start to foreshadow what he might do, and he will grab the headlines while Trump is sort of claiming the election was stolen. Biden will be announcing who is going to do the most important jobs in his cabinet, maybe saying what he's going to do about the Supreme Court, maybe talking about rejoining the Paris climate change deal, and will grab the headlines with a series of what intended to be positive stories coming out to draw an even sharper contrast between him and the the way that the defeated president is behaving. I think it can get quite messy. And my biggest worry, honestly, you know, I'm not American, but I think it would just be a horrible thing to see, would be if Trump supporters take to the streets over. I mean, if he says the election's been stolen, I think that's all too possible that there will be people taking to the streets and uh, protesting about what has happened. I just want to note that Trump claimed the election was stolen in 2016, and he won, right? (laughs) 
How did he, can I ask, ask both of you, what was Trump's reaction to the 2018 midterms? Because those didn't work out very well for the Republicans either, but I suppose it wasn't such a personal defeat. Well, as I remember it, first he denied that there was no, that there was a blue wave. So because because the results there too came out over time. So at first they said, haha, this wasn't a blue wave. And then he had this press conference where he went through and read out names of Republicans who had not embraced him and who had lost. In other words, I didn't lose, you lost. Yeah. Emily is completely right. I mean, the only other things I add to that are, number one, initially, he only talked about the Senate races that the Republicans had won, or the governor's races they had won, and not the 40-odd congressional races, House of Representatives races, they had lost. And then as the results came through, he kind of pretended it hadn't happened and tried to move the news agenda on. But Emily's absolutely right. He also said... My name was not on the ballot paper, but the people who weren't with me, who kind of disassociated themselves from me in their campaigns, they all lost. So you know, there's a message in there for Republicans who aren't fully on my uh, on my agenda. So yeah, I mean, people in the White House were telling me that privately he took it very, very badly. Not didn't blame himself, of course, blamed all sorts of things. Whoever was running the campaign, the individuals who lost, you know, life itself, the fake media, all of these things. But personally, he took it very badly. And I just remember talking to a very senior member of his then emerging campaign team for 2020, who said, it hasn't happened, but he said, if Trump is certain he's going to lose in 2020, he won't even run, he'll retire. But uh, it's too late for that. And of course, pre-pandemic, I think he thought he would win. Can I just ask what you think would happen in the alternative scenario in which Biden won narrowly and with a, with a margin that Trump could bluster away as being fake votes or mail-in votes that don't count or corruption or crooked this or rigged that? Do you think we could get to inauguration day with two men claiming the presidency? I don't know about that because I don't know how quickly it would be solved, but I'm sure if it is close, if it's anything like as close as 2016 was, Trump will go to the courts. And there are battalions of lawyers on both sides in all the swing states, I understand, poised to leap into action if the vote is close enough to contest. And I mean, this isn't unprecedented after what happened in Florida in the year 2000 with Bush versus Gore. So we've been there before. And Emily will well, no better than I do, but there are, I used to meet Democrats all the time who claim that Bush stole that election, that Gore really won. So uh, I'm not sure if they... (laughs) ever really resolve this to everyone's satisfaction, but I'm sure they would go for the Well, no, especially because three of the lawyers from Bush v. Gore, from the Bush team, are now sitting on the Supreme Court. So we will be, if this this goes to the courts, it it is going to haunt us forever. And if it's narrow, it is absolutely going to the courts. I think if it's just, you know, a huge Biden victory, in that case, I do think, I agree that some Senate Republicans will say like, we got our three justices on the court. You know, we have 30% of the circuit courts. We don't We don't need this guy, right? We'll just go complain about the deficit for four years and then take it back. But I think that if if it's close, they Such will- cynicism, Emily. Listen, Jeremy, I've lived here. But I think that if, I think that if it's close, they will support Trump and, and his court battles. And briefly, let's see what happens. But what would your advice be to someone like, to a leader like Boris Johnson, if the result is contested? Presumably they don't really want to wade in any- any more than is absolutely necessary. But what would you advise that? Well, I'm slightly surprised already by, given all the communication specialists around in the Johnson team, by some of the mistakes they make. But I can't believe that they would get dragged into commenting on a disputed election outcome. I can't believe they would. So I hope they would would just shut up and wait for events to take take their turn. 
Good advice, I think. I would also say to us, if I were advising Boris, that he may just have to take some rather bitter medicine if Biden has won and just accept that he only gets the fourth or fifth telephone call amongst Europeans. I mean, maybe Merkel, Macron and the Irish Taoiseach get their calls first. I don't know. But our main calling card remains the defence, security, intelligence relationship. And when he does get a chance to make his pitch to Biden, that's what he's got to talk about, being the most steadfast, reliable, uh, consistent ally for America. And if Biden wants to restore America that is about doing good in the world and solving problems and confronting tyrannies and dictators, then we are the go-to people for that. Yeah, I guess the symbolic stuff, you know, the, the visit, the first call, the, you know, the talk about the special relationship might be difficult for some of those around Johnson because they see themselves as such exemplary Atlanticists. The mood I detect from some of the, the people around the Prime Minister is, we left the European Union to be better members of the Anglophone Alliance, and now it's our, our right to claim our special place in Washington or, or whatever. And, and you're yeah. about to have, or potentially about to have a president who doesn't really recognise that special, special yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. And my time in Washington, there were plenty of ministers who came through who would express that sort of thought. But it's kind of, if they think that, then they're not listening. They're not listening to uh, what Democrats have been saying for actually, you know, two or three years to be indiscreet from them. It was extraordinarily difficult to persuade visiting politicians over my time in Washington, visiting ministers, conservative ministers, even go and talk to Democrats. They wanted to go to the Hudson Institute and to the um, Heritage Foundation and to talk to a few Republicans on the Hill and meet their counterparts. We would say, no, no, you need to go and see the Democrats as well. And it was incredibly difficult to persuade them to, to spend time doing that. And, you know, again, you know, there is a consequence to these to these decisions. And, you know, we heard about Dominic Raab flying off to Washington, you know, a few weeks back to make his number with the Democrats. You know, this is October. You know, I mean, what about even after the Democrats won big in the midterms? Could you persuade them then to go and see Democrats? It was a little bit easier, but not much easier. It was still, still quite hard. So you've got to learn lessons of history. <laughs> Yeah, think a bit long term. Well, let's let's briefly think a bit short term because our fi final section is we're going to discuss what we'll be looking ahead to in the next over the next seven days or over the next week. Emily, as you're on location, obviously the thing you're looking ahead to is the election. But what what about the election? Any details or points that you'll be paying particular attention to? Yeah, so specifically the states that I will be watching are, I mean, all of the swing states, obviously, but specifically Texas, Arizona, Georgia, for three reasons. The first is that these states have been predicted to go blue, right, or to swing toward the Democrats for years now. And whether they do and or how much they do, I think will tell us something about American demographic breakdown and voting patterns and kind of where we're where we're headed, provided we have a future with free and fair elections. Secondly, there is a history of voter suppression in specifically Georgia and Texas. So I'll be looking at whether that meant, and by voter suppression, I mean both that which is intentional and that which is just, you didn't predict that there would be that many people voting in Fulton County. Well, Atlanta's in Fulton County and now there's people waiting online and they have to drop out of line because they can't wait there all day. Like that is also a form of maybe not intentional, but a voter suppression. So does that manifest itself in the next week? I will be watching. But the other reason that I'll be looking at these three states in particular is that they can project on the night, because maybe, because those states can start counting the early votes before election day. Rust Belt states 
really cannot. So Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, we're going to have to wait and see. This is just because some states start voting before polling day and others don't. And this is what makes pandemic elections so difficult because we have so many early votes this year, because we have so many mail-in votes this year. All of the states have different rules about when you can start the counting and how long you can continue to accept the, the ballots, right? So this was a big thing this week. Like in Wisconsin, the extension was to count the ballots was thrown out by the Supreme Court. People were either overjoyed or very upset. But Arizona, Texas, Georgia... They all start counting, and other states as well, all start counting ahead of time. So we may know how those states are going. And, you know, if Texas goes for Biden the night of, it's it's kind of game over for Trump. So I'll be looking at that. And second, what will you be looking out for next week? I think that Emily's three states are indeed fascinating. And of course, I'll be watching those too. In particular, Texas, because I have visited Texas several times when I was in Washington. I remember in particular a very brief, but really sort of bizarre meeting with Donald Trump Jr. We both happened to be attending a rodeo in Fort Worth, of all things. I'm a big fan of Attica Locke's sort of books, which are all set in Texas. And the idea of Texas turning blue just seems to me so inconceivable. I'll be fascinated to see, see what happens there. But I'll be looking also at the Senate races, because I know some of the senators who are most, most at risk. Susan Collins, who is you know, a very moderate Republican, is not really expected, I think, to survive, to win her seat in, in Maine. Cory Gardner, who is also not really on the sort of Trumpian fringe of the party, is going to lose probably in Colorado. I didn't really know Tom Tillis in North Carolina, but he is strongly at risk. I did know Lindsey Graham very well, saw a lot of him, and it's hard to imagine that he's losing in, or that he can lose in South Carolina, But he's one of those people where it's within a few points now. And that's really hard to believe. So there are are some fascinating Senate races. And I think it's just so, so important as part of a Biden Biden victory that the Democrats retake the Senate as well. Because otherwise, although Biden still has quite a lot of freedom to do things internationally, like rejoin Paris and so on, he will really be constrained domestically and have to do slightly shabby deals with the Republicans all the time to get stuff done. So winning the Senate, Democrats retaking the Senate, is absolutely uh, crucial for them. So I'll be watching all that. The other thing that will just be a really electric moment will be, let's say Biden wins and is winning comfortably and kind of inarguably, you just wait for Trump to walk onto a stage somewhere as the beaten incumbent and think what he says. What's he going to say? Is he going to for the first time as president, be kind of statesmanlike, you can't see it. So how bitter and um, angry and how bad is he going to be? If he gives a public statement at all, I hear, I hear they've moved his election night party from the Trump Hotel to the White House on the grounds that they don't want such a big public event. Surely he'll have to react in public at some point. But that will you be... Think, you think, wouldn't you? But maybe... Uh, Who knows? Maybe, yeah, maybe. Well, that would be something as well. <laughs> it's going to be a dramatic, dramatic few days, absolutely. I will be looking out for all of those things. Also, I'll be paying attention to, particularly as this one may run further on into the week, Pennsylvania. Our new statesman results model has currently has Pennsylvania as the tipping point state. So we think the states, the 2016 states that Hillary Clinton lost that Biden is most likely to win are Michigan and Wisconsin. If he wins those two and Pennsylvania, he gets across the line. We have Pennsylvania at 76% to vote for Biden at the moment. If Joe Biden, as a son of Scranton, Pennsylvania, doesn't win, 
that'll be a real surprise to me. Although you do have all sorts of interesting demographic factors there. I mean, I'm, I don't know who it's actually attributed to, but there's that phrase, Pennsylvania's Philadelphia in the East, Pittsburgh in the West, and Alabama in the middle. Yes. And we've got a colleague of ours from City Monitor, our sister publication, is in Philadelphia and has been writing all about it. And in fact, we'll be on the ground there to, to cover events there if the result is tight. But it does look like that will be an important one. Who knows? Maybe it'll even be the Florida of, of 2020. Jeremy, there's a line about Florida, rather like your line about Pennsylvania, which is that the further north you are in Florida, the further south you've gone. <laughs> yeah. I like that. The electoral geography will be fascinating and we'll be covering it all in great detail on New Statesman website and election coverage. But with that, I'd like to remind listeners that they can read Sir Kim's diary from a few weeks ago. We'll put that on the web page for this podcast. And you can get his book, which I really do strongly recommend, Collateral Damage in all good bookshops to the extent that you can go to bookshops these days. But I'd reiterate that it's a, it's a very good read on transatlantic relations and life as a diplomat. So Sir Kim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. So... Normally, this is a once a week podcast, but we will be back next week on both Monday and Wednesday with a little pre and post election play. On Monday, we will be talking about the polling over the course of the election, but also the the very last state of play. And for that, we will be joined by Ben Walker, who is the New Statesman's data and polling wizard. He's worked on all of the, if you've read any of the swing state stories, he's done all of the graphs and charts there. If you've not read the swing state stories, you should. And then Wednesday, we'll be discussing whatever it is that we know about election night and also election night itself and how it transpired and how, you know, what the candidates said and did and which states we know, which states we don't. So please tune in next Monday and next Wednesday. And in between those two podcasts, you can follow all of the thrills and spills of election night and the immediate aftermath on the New Statesman. We will have uh, live results, analysis and commentary on our US election hub, which you can already visit to see our results model and wider coverage. That's at newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020. And Emily, me and other members of the team will be live tweeting the results with charts, data, analysis, witticisms, expressions of profound existential despair, delete as appropriate, on our New Statesman Twitter account. So on the night itself, Emily will be launching our live tweeting at about 6pm on Tuesday, election day, Washington time. That's about 11pm UK time at our New Statesman Twitter account at New Statesman. And that will be continuing through the night as the first results come in and through into Wednesday. So do pay attention to that if you're one of the, the people who likes to follow everything minute by minute. Yes, I would just add that if you want to go to sleep, I don't blame you, but we will also be running analysis through the night that will be on the US Hub the next day. So you can get a good night's sleep and then catch up at the New Statesman US Hub. If you have enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends and political allies and enemies about it. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.